Grug Crude lives in a cave with his wife, Ugga, his daughters, Eep and Sandy, their son, Thunk, and his mother-in-law, Gran. The world of the Crudes is a very scary place. They have to fight for survival all the time, and so Grug likes to keep his family safe inside the cave. Crude has a motto that he repeats to his family over and over and over again. Never don't be afraid. Never don't be afraid. Never don't be afraid. Every night, Grug tells his story, a family, before bed. And he illustrates his stories on the wall of the cave. And every story is basically the same. Someone who was unafraid ventured outside of the cave. And in a dramatic finish, Grug always concludes the story the same way. He smashes his hand against the figure of the one who was unafraid, and he says this, and they died every time. As I watched this movie last week, The Croods, the new Pixar animated picture, it struck me, it struck me that many Christians are like Grug Crude. We're fearful, and the church is our cave the safe place in which we like to dwell because we feel that our world is a scary place. It's not very Christian anymore. And so we feel embattled. The world, we believe, is against us. And so what do we do? We hunker down in fear, in dread of what will happen, afraid of the people and of the world and what they might do to us or what they might require of us. And so we hide in fear. And yet the truth is that we are called as people of faith, as believers in Christ, over and over and over again to go boldly, without fear, into the world. This morning I want us to consider why we should get out of the cave, why we should go into the world, and why it's going to be okay. And we'll see that as we come this morning to Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God, beginning in verse 31. Jesus is speaking, it's the Last Supper, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the, crow, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me. You will deny three times that you know me. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. Lord, the truth of it, your truth, I pray that... It would penetrate deep into our hearts. And Father, as we see you and who you are, that we would be transformed, changed people that do the things that you call us to do and go the places that you call us to do or that you would make us people of faith. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. While Jesus was sitting around the table with his disciples, At the Last Supper, during the course of that dinner, he looked at his disciples and he said to them, Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, 
I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What a rush that must have been for the disciples to hear Jesus say these words. I can only imagine their excitement as they looked around at each other trying to process what they believe Jesus promised to them here, that they are going to take over the government. That somehow they, fishermen, and not the emperor in Rome, are going to be in charge. Though they, in this moment, misunderstand what it is that Jesus has for them, the point here is that Jesus presents to the disciples the good things that God has for them. The good things that God wants for them. A place at his table, a kingdom, thrones upon which to sit. That's what the Father has for these disciples. Wow. But then look where Jesus goes immediately to the passage we've read this morning. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And so here it is, juxtaposed before us, is this this ultimate reality that's a reality for all of us here this morning. What the Lord wants for us, what the Lord offers to us, and what Satan, our enemy, wants for us. Now before we continue, let me mention this. According to research conducted by the Barna Group, four out of ten Christians, 40%, strongly agree that Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. Forty percent of people who claim to be Christians don't believe that Satan is real. An additional twenty percent said they agree somewhat. So twenty more percent believe, yeah, Satan is probably not a real person. That's sixty percent of the people who call themselves Christians. Barna continues, most Americans, even those who say they are Christian, have doubts about the intrusion of the supernatural into the natural world. Hollywood has made evil accessible and tame, making Satan and demons less worrisome than the Bible suggests they really are. It's hard for achievement-driven, self-reliant, independent people to believe that their lives can be impacted by unseen forces. Now, if only not believing it, would make it untrue or make it go away, then we would be all set, wouldn't we? Well, I just don't believe that is true. But but it doesn't, because it, it is true. Jesus says here that it is true. If Satan were only a symbol, if he weren't a real being, from from where would the evil come that threatens Peter? And why would Peter be the target of it? Our enemy is real. Jesus says so. We need to believe it. And so God has a place for Peter at his table. God has for Peter a throne from which to rule. But Jesus says, Satan has asked Peter to sift you like wheat. Asked that the NIV has here is not nearly strong enough to convey the meaning of Satan's request. Other translations like the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, do better when they say that Satan has demanded. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That's what Satan wants, and he wants it passionately. Let me have him. Let me sift him. That's the demand that Satan makes. This illustration isn't as meaningful uh, to us because we don't sift 
wheat anymore. But let me just tell you, it's a violent process. It involves a lot of shaking, shake, 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 up and down and side to side to get out all the chaff so it'll blow away. A violent process. And that's why Jesus uses the term here to indicate to Peter and to us the violence that Satan would do us and do to our faith. And so it's no surprise that Peter is the apostle who later writes in his first letter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan wanted Peter in his jaws so he could shake him like a rag doll. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. That's the reality. And it's the reality for all of us as well. Even though you may be uncomfortable with the thought or a little embarrassed with your education, and in light of the scientific age in which we live, to admit that there's a personal savior, a personal Satan, that doesn't make his desire to destroy you any less real just because you don't believe it. It just makes you naive. Naive. To deny what Jesus says is true, what he warns you about. You choose to be defenseless against your enemy at your own risk. But say you're here this morning and you are one of the believers, or Christians, the 40% that believe that Satan really is real, that he uh, really is at work. This reality is often the very thing that makes us afraid. The very thing that makes us want to stay in the cave, to not venture out, to focus inwardly on ourselves and ours, instead of moving out of the Christian cave into the world that Jesus does say belongs to the prince of the air. But God has better for us than living in fear in a cave. And by faith, we claim those good things of God, which are not only an eternity in heaven with him, but a life on earth that can be deeply satisfying. A life on earth that can be full of contentment as you live the life that God has called you to live. As I live that life, as we live the life that he's equipped us to live and designed us to live. A life that can change the world in which we live. Change the lives of people that live around us for the better. Because we show to them the compassion and the mercy and the grace that the Lord has shown to us. And so their lives are transformed as we speak the gospel to them. Our lives can count for something important, for something eternal. But only, only if you and I get out of the cave and move out in faith. Faith is what drives us out of the cave. Faith is what drives fear away from us. And that's why faith, your faith, And my faith is the target of the battle. Satan wants to destroy our faith. Because you know what? Faith believes in God. Faith seeks and expects great things from God. That's what faith does. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is what saves you. That's how highly God uh, exalts or values faith. It's what he requires of us to put into effect in our lives the grace that he has given us to forgive us of our sins and to grant us eternal life. It comes through faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please God. 
Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Faith pleases God because faith says, I believe you, God. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you can and will do everything you promise to do. I believe you. And there's not one person in this room right now, not one, myself included, that is not pleased when someone believes in you. When someone has faith in you. It makes us sore that people are believing right things and good things and true things about us. It pleases us. That someone believes that you are able to do something and do really do it really well. Oh, you want such and such done? Get Joe to do it. Joe's great. If you put Joe on it, it's going to happen. It pleases us when people put their faith and their confidence in us. And yet you and I are imperfect people. We're people who fail. Sometimes we don't get it done. Sometimes we can't get it done. Sometimes we just give up and don't want to get it done. But not God. Never, never does he fail. Never does he give up. Never does he lack the strength or the ability to do everything that he has promised that he will do. Never, never, never. We don't know anyone else like that. No one else in our lives. People will let you down. People will not do what they promise to do. Even if their reason is legitimate, they will forget to do it. Something else will come up. They'll just decide not to do it. Whatever. It doesn't matter the reason. People will fail you. Things will fail you. You build a bridge. A bridge builds, carries people reliably without fail until the day that it doesn't because it collapses. Your computer functions perfectly every time until the one time that you need it to function because you have a big presentation that you have to make, but your computer crashes and freezes. And you say, well, my computer has never done that before. Well, it did that time. Just when you needed it the most. Charleston Symphony Orchestra spent hours bringing their equipment in here Thursday to set up for their rehearsal. And at just the time that the rehearsal was supposed to begin, the lights went out. And it was dark in here. Too dark to see. The lights in the building next door were out. Too dark to see. I said, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I know we paid the bill. I don't know what's wrong with the lights. How relieved I was to find out that the lights uh, all over downtown Charleston, or a large part of it, were out. But nevertheless, when we needed the power, the power failed. No thing, no person in this world will not fail us at some point. Only God will not fail us. And it pleases God immensely when we acknowledge that. You alone, God, are perfectly faithful. And it pleases Him when we live our lives and when we make decisions in our lives about what we do based on the fact that He is a faithful God. A faithful God who knows us and loves us. And so it's no wonder that in response to Satan's demand, Jesus prays for Peter's faith. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Fear says, I don't believe. Fear says, stay here, huddle together where it's safe. Faith says, I do believe. Faith says, let's go out there and be about God's business. Why? Because you, O Lord, are a shield about me. It's okay. We can go. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit never fail. 
But our enemy hopes that we will come to believe that he will fail us. That the ever-faithful God isn't. He hopes that you and I will finally give up on God because of all the things that happen in our lives. Because misery loves company. And Satan wants us to turn our back on the God upon whom he turned his back. And he wants us to be in the cave. He wants us to live there in fear so he can roam around the world without our interference because he knows that we can really mess up his plans. He knows that if we move out in faith and get out of the cave, we can reclaim people's lives for Christ, people that he wants for his own self. That won't happen. If you and I abandon our faith in God, Peter has faith. When thousands of people turned away from following Jesus, he turned to the disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter's the one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the faith that Peter has, that Satan wants him to abandon. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? It was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's faith. You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. I believe it. And that's the faith that Satan wanted Peter to abandon. So that Peter will be out of the way. So that Peter's life will be a hopeless wreck in comparison to the life of faith that he knew with Jesus. Just as Judas' life became a hopeless, miserable wreck when he betrayed the Lord. That's what Satan wants all of us to do, to betray the Lord. But Peter pray, but Jesus prays for Peter's faith, that Peter's faith will not fail, that his faith will not pack its bags and exit the heart in which it's been residing. Because Jesus knows without faith it's impossible to please God. And so this thing in Peter that pleases God, this faith, it must not go away. It must keep its place in Peter's heart. If Jesus prays for the faith, the faith of Peter, how important must faith be that Jesus prays for it? Galatians 2.20 says, The life I live in the body I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me Galatians 3.11, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 1.17 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith is what it means for us to live our lives. Take faith out of your life. Faith in God is goodness. You have no real life. Faith is how we come to know God. And that's exactly why there's a battle taking place for your faith and my faith. That's why our faith is in the crosshairs of Satan's aim. If he can destroy your faith, he can destroy your life. If he can destroy your faith, he can destroy your life. By faith, we experience what God has for us. By fear, we, we reap the destruction that Satan has for us. And so we say to each other, never don't be afraid. Never don't be, never don't be afraid. Never don't be afraid. Stay in the cave. But that's not the life to which we're called. We're called to a life beyond fear. We're called to a life outside of the cave. We're called to get out of the world. We're called to do great things for God. We're called to expect much from our faithful God. Where do we get our confidence to live this life? To get over the fear. If for no other reason, if for no other reason, 
It's this. We know that Jesus, our Savior, is praying for us. He's praying for us. So we can get out of the cave. Look again in verse 32. Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. The word that Jesus uses here for prayed is not the normal word that you see throughout the New Testament, which translated means pray or a prayer. Jesus uses a different word. And the word that Jesus uses here means to ask for something pleadingly. Prayer isn't always necessarily pleading. Sometimes it is, but it isn't always. But in this case, it is a a, a pleading prayer. Jesus pleads in prayer for the faith of Peter. So it isn't a tiny Tim prayer. God bless us, everyone. Jesus pleads, not for himself, but on behalf of Peter. And when a prayer is made on behalf of someone else, we call it intercession. We are interceding, not for ourselves, but for someone else. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives, always lives to intercede for them. At all times, the Lord lives. He is not a dead Savior, but a living Savior. And how unfortunate we only celebrate that one day of the year, one Sunday of the year. He is a living Savior. And part of what he does with that resurrected life is to intercede before the Father on your behalf and on mine. Not to beg the Father, to do something that the Father doesn't want to do if he didn't beg for us, no. But as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father... His nail-pierced hands and his feet show that the wrath of God against sin has been completely exhausted by Christ on the cross. And the plan was put in place to take care of sin and to provide salvation through faith. Christ carried it out perfectly and completely. So what encourages me most about Jesus telling Peter here that he's prayed for him is that Jesus is not put off by the fact, nor is he hindered or silenced because he knows that in the next few hours, in the darkness of the night, Peter will have a darkness of the soul. In those next hours, the next hours coming up, Peter will deny three times that he ever knew Jesus. And Jesus knows that's going to happen. He predicts it will happen. But he prays anyway. If Jesus stopped praying for you, if he stopped praying for me, Every time we stopped being faithful to him, where would we be? What hope would we have? But Jesus does pray for us, always. That's the reality. What does that reality do to you? How does it make you feel to know that even now, Jesus is praying for you? It was a poignant moment when we were in the battle to save this building, to rescue it. And then there... The city of Charleston came and he stood right there and he pointed right back there to that stained glass window. He said, that is where my grandmother sat. That is where my grandmother knelt and prayed for me and prayed for my family. It was a moving moment for me because I remember how my grandmother prayed for me. And yet 
How unbelievably better is it to know that not our sweet grandmother is praying for us, but the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is praying for us. We feel like everything is going to be all right if dear old granny is praying for us. But how much better to know that Jesus himself is praying for us. In light of that reality, in light of that reality that Jesus is praying for us, what is it that should keep us in the cave? What is it? Name it, that we should fear if Jesus is praying for us. Unless, of course, you think for some reason that you are excluded from that prayer. And that's a completely other topic, but that's something that you need to think about today. If you think for some reason that you are not included as one for whom Jesus is praying, uh, come see me. There are some things that you need to get straight in your mind and in your heart. Why would he not be praying for you? And then more hope comes in the fact that Jesus' prayers are effective. Peter's faith did not fail. Jesus knew that it would not fail. Jesus has confidence in his sustaining power because he says, Peter, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus doesn't say, if you return, as if it were possible that Peter may slip away from the Lord because nothing can separate him from the love of Christ. Jesus has confidence in his own prayers for those he loves, and so should we. We should have confidence in the prayers of Jesus. Peter's faith is going to falter, but it's not going to fail. Satan did sift Peter, but Jesus prayed, and in the end, faith won, and that's evidenced by the life of Peter, who became a bold proclaimer of the gospel, who was beaten for Christ, who was jailed for Christ, who was crucified upside down for Christ because of the faithful intercession of the Lord. Peter made it through victoriously. And so will you, and so will I if we're believers in Christ. Satan has sifted or is sifting some of you right now. And I don't know what all of your circumstances are. And you don't know all of mine, but I know some of them. And it's a sifting process to destroy your faith, but the Lord continues to be faithful. The Lord continues to pray for you and to pray for me. You may slip as Peter did that night. But your faith will ultimately not fail. You may have to go through a dark night of the soul, as Peter did. You may have doubts and questions. Is all this faith stuff really real? But that does not shock the Lord. And you think way too highly of yourself if you think that you're going to be the one to do something that's so shocking that the Lord has never seen or heard before. No, I promise you, you won't be. And whatever those thoughts are, they're not going to cause the Lord to abandon you any more than he abandoned Peter. You may be strong in your faith today and complacent in your faith tomorrow and questioning your faith the next day because of the circumstances of your life. We're the ones that change. But our hope, yours and mine, is in our unchanging Lord who faithfully prays for us. That's our hope. That's our hope. The faithfulness of our praying Savior is the reason that we can ask and expect great things from God as individuals and as a church. The faithfulness of our praying Savior is the reason that we can have hope for this city in which we live. Failure and brokenness and faithfulness were in the heart of Peter. In this man who made this great profession of faith, failureness and brokenness and faithfulness are in my heart. And they're in your heart as well. We're going to encounter the same failure and brokenness in the world. We're going to encounter the power and the grip of sin and unbelief in those around us, but what is even more powerful than the power of sin 
is the power of a praying Savior. And so you have to identify your cave. You do. What cave are you living in? Figure it out so you can get out of it. Identify your fear, whatever your fear is, and let faith put that fear to death. You know why? Because God has important, really important things for us to do in this world through his power. And our lives are short. And so we have to ask, Lord, what are the things that you're asking me to do for your kingdom? And go do them. And why shouldn't we? Jesus is praying for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even now as we pray to you, you are praying for us, interceding for us before the Father. Father, right now is seeing your nail-pierced hands and feet. And together you're rejoicing in the great victory that you have won and that you have on the cross defeated forever uh, the power of sin. You have defeated forever the power of death. And so with the fear of death gone and the certainty of eternity with you, Lord, why should our lives here on earth be marked by fear? When instead, Lord, we can move out and do great things for you and through your power. We can change the world. We can make it a better place. We can reclaim those souls that that you have for yourself, Lord. Give us the joy that a life of faith brings. Don't let us have that joy robbed by living in fear in the cave. Help us to move out with with power and boldness, trusting in your faithfulness to us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.